Good morning, everyone. It's lovely to see you. You know it's serious when the pastor brings a book this thick <laughs> up to the pulpit. We are in a series where we're going to spend the next four weeks meditating on the meaning of the cross of Christ as we prepare for Easter. So we're in the season of Lent, as you know, which is that 40-day period where we prepare ourselves to worship Jesus on Easter Sunday morning. But before we get to Easter Sunday, we have to go through the horror of Good Friday, the horror of the cross, and to think about the meaning of the cross. And the cross, as you know, and here we are gathered around the cross this morning, is the central symbol of the Christian faith. But what happened on the cross that is so significant? And that's what we're going to explore over the next four weeks. And I do hope that as we do this, you'll see that the cross was not just a tragic accident, but in fact was the central moment of human history, uh, the moment where God reorients human history from a story of tragedy and despair to a story of redemption and hope. And one of the most fascinating things about the cross is that while it is the central symbol of the Christian faith, there is really no simple, single answer to the question, why did Jesus die? There are a number of answers to that question, and Christians have been wrestling with that for the last 2,000 years. So we're just going to spend four weeks summarizing 2,000 years of thought uh, in this series. Uh, no, we're not. The purpose of this series is not just to enter the meaning of the cross intellectually, but to enter into it with our hearts, to worship Jesus at the foot of the cross, to um, meditate on what the cross means and to allow it to affect us, to touch us, to change us, to transform us, and in the hope that as we do that, we'll be reawakened and renewed in the love of God. And one of the ways that we're going to do that together is each week at the end of the sermon, we're going to gather at the foot of the cross, literally, and take communion. And so I'll be leading that in just a moment when we get to the end of the talk. Now, throughout this series, we're going to look at the cross from four different perspectives. Rather like, if you can imagine looking at a diamond and kind of looking at it from different angles, we're going to look at the cross from four different perspectives. Now, they're not, they're not each independent of each other. They're interrelated and interconnected. And you'll notice as we go that you can't just talk about one aspect of the cross without touching in some way on all the others. But we will try to keep it focused. Otherwise, we'll be here for a very long time this morning. In this series, we're going to look, if we go to the slide where we've got four points, thank you. The cross is an act of God's love, which reveals his love to us and, and which draws us into reconciliation. We're going to look at how the cross is an act of God's justice to pay the just penalty of our sin and rebellion, which we read about in Genesis. We're going to explore how the cross is an act of victory by which God defeats the powers of evil. And throughout history, generations of Christians have kind of favored one or other of those views. But this morning, we're going to look at the main way that the cross was understood for about the first 400 years, arguably even the first 1,000 years of Christian history, which is, next slide, that the cross of Christ, the death of Jesus, was an act of ransom, an act of ransom. Through the cross, God offered his son, and his son willingly offered himself as a ransom payment to purchase our freedom from slavery to sin and death. He has redeemed us literally redeemed us, that is, bought us back by the precious blood of Christ. So that's what we're going to be exploring, exploring here this morning. Now, it makes sense that this would be one of the main ways that the early church thought about the cross, because if you think about it, 
they were living under the power of the Roman Empire where slavery was a very common experience. So culturally it makes sense, right? They lived in a time when slaves were bought and sold all the time. And occasionally a slave could be redeemed from slavery by paying the redemption price and so setting the person free. The second reason it makes sense is a biblical reason, of course. It is one of the ways in which Jesus himself refers to the meaning of his death. And we see this in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus said, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, that word is doulos, to become a slave, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And all, this is all present throughout the rest of the New Testament as well. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, For there is one God and mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Or Hebrews 9, by the blood of Christ, he is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from sins committed under the first covenant. 1 Peter 1, for you were ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver and gold as an economic transaction, but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect. So there's just a few scriptures and there are a number of others, but in my view, the best explanation actually comes from Hebrews 2, which doesn't use the word ransom specifically, but it uses similar ideas. Uh, it doesn't use the word ransom, but speaks about slavery. Let's read it. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, that is Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For this reason he had to be made like them, like us, fully human in every way in order that he might make atonement, at one to be made right with God for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You ever been tempted here this morning? If that's the case, you have a Messiah, a Savior who is able to help you because he knows what it is like to be human. Are you with me? Now, there's a couple of really important elements about these verses that I want to point out. First, that this is speaking, obviously, about Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God, in other words, becoming human in, like us in every way. And that's the key idea here. And therefore, it was Jesus as a human being, fully experiencing everything it means to be human, including being tempted, including going down even into the slavery of sin and death, which has paid the ransom price to secure our freedom, to redeem us, to buy us back, all of us, from slavery to the power of sin and death. Or as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin, does anyone know how this ends? To become sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. So we believe that Jesus, as the incarnate Son of God, was both fully God and fully human, right? But this understanding of Jesus as our ransom emphasizes that this was something he had to do in his humanity, right? This is the human Jesus. 
offering himself as a perfect sinless sacrifice all the way down into death. And by doing that, he was undoing the treachery we humans had committed, uh, which we read about in Genesis, which Jesus alone can undo because he is the first human being who's ever lived who is not subject to sin and death and the devil. Now, if you've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you'll be familiar with this kind of idea, right? Um, because that's how Aslan explains his death at the hands of the White Witch, which he offered on the stone table in order to free the traitor Edmund. See, the White Witch had a rightful claim on Edmund's life, so Aslan ransomed him by offering himself instead, okay? This is the concept of ransom. And we have this on the, on the slide, though, and this is how Aslan explains it. Though the witch knew the deep magic, that is that uh, there, well, anyway, I won't explain. There is a magic, that'll take me the whole of this morning. There is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes only back to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, when God shaped and ordered all things, when I reused Genesis language, she would have read a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery, was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack or the grave would be opened and death itself would start working backwards. Beautiful, isn't it? Death itself would start working backwards. But it still begs the question, it's what I want to explore this morning, how on earth did we get into this predicament? How did, how did we end up in this situation, in slavery to sin and death? And why was Jesus' death necessary to free us from this situation? And in order to answer that, we have to go back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, uh, our reading this morning. And if you're here this morning and you can't handle the Genesis stories as kind of literal things, that's okay, I want to give you a way in. The, the late chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, Jonathan Sachs, described the biblical creation story as truth in a narrative mode. In other words, it's not necessarily meant to be read like a newspaper report, right? Instead, it's a story. It's a story inspired by God, a true story, because it tells us something true about God and about us, and about the nature of our condition, even if you can't take it literally. I hope you can enter into this as a story. Now, what does this story tell us? First of all, the story in Genesis tells us that we were created by God to be His image bearers and to flourish in this beautiful creation that He'd given us to enjoy. But something goes terribly wrong. Well, how does it go wrong? Well, somewhere in the garden, well, in the middle of the garden, actually, there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God tells Adam, look, you can eat from any other tree in the garden. You can have the avocados, you can have the pears, you can have the bananas. You just cannot eat from that particular tree. Eat from all the others, just not that one. Because if you do, you will die. Well, isn't that just a kick in the pants? Like, why on earth would God place this superbly dangerous forbidden tree in the center of the garden? right? It's almost there to cause this issue. Why would God do that? Have you ever wondered that? Like I have for pretty much the whole of my Christian life. Now, I came across an explanation recently in a sermon I was listening to. So this is not my original idea, um, but I found this really, really helpful. And this is what the preacher said, the knowledge of good and evil is a poetic way of saying 
the knowledge of everything, right? It's like saying top to bottom or east to west. To eat of this tree would be to know everything that is or could be the good and the evil, to have that kind of power. And to the question that bugs most of us, why put it in the garden at all? Well, the answer is that it sort of has to be there, doesn't it? Because remember, this is truth in a narrative mode. So the story is telling us in a metaphorical way, friends, that the world didn't just come out of nowhere. God made it and he put everything in its place, put everything in order. And that means the knowledge of everything about creation is in creation too. That potential knowledge is there, including the knowledge of how it could all go wrong, of how we could enter into what is not good, what is anti-good, what is evil, of how the world might degrade into chaos. Could we just take that slide off the screen for a moment, please, if you wouldn't mind? Thank you. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, therefore, refers to that potential where everything can go wrong. And the knowledge is there because God knows that some aspects of that knowledge will destroy us. We were not made to handle it, right? It'd be like giving a toddler a stick of dynamite and a lighter. We don't have the power to control that kind of knowledge. That would require us to be God, not just like God, but to be God. So the serpent wasn't entirely lying, right? He, didn't just, he just didn't give us the whole story. And isn't that always the way we get tempted? We get a little bit of the story, not the whole story. I mean, it's not like Eve set out that morning when she said to herself, you know, today I'm going to defy God with disastrous historical consequences. But the serpent promises Eve that if she takes of the fruit, she won't die, but she'll be like God. Note the difference. She won't be God, but she'll be like God. And so Eve looks at the tree, and it looks tasty, and it looks beautiful, and she takes a bite, and Adam, who's evidently standing right there, has some too, and the consequences are disastrous. Remember, this is truth in the narrative mode, right? This story tells us something true about ourselves. The fact is, friends, we exist as people who have crossed a line. We exist as people who have crossed a line, wanting to be more than we were created to be. Not content just to know God, but we wanted to be like God. We didn't stay in our lane, and there are several consequences that Genesis gives us for um, the results of that. They spell that out, such as, now it was going to be really, really hard to keep life going. We're going to have to work really hard at it. But the main one I want to address is this, that by eating the fruit, humanity actually did get what we wanted which was knowledge of everything that could be, the good and the evil. And once our eyes were opened to that, there was no turning back. Are you with me? And this knowledge is totally destructive to us. Totally destructive to us. God can know everything. Like, this is the difference, right? God can know everything. God can know everything and still choose only the good. Can still create only the good. But we can't do that. So the serpent was right. We are now like God in our knowledge, but we are not like God in our power. And so therefore, once we knew about this potentiality toward evil, we couldn't help ourselves. We became slaves to it. Does that make sense? Our creative purpose was distorted and poisoned by our sin, by our ability now to imagine what is evil. And throughout human history, we can see the way that we have used our God-given gifts, our God-given gifts of creativity and intelligence, right? um, 
and inventiveness, and we have put those things to destructive purposes, to cause pain, instead of creating life and flourishing and shalom, as we were intended to. Now, I'm not saying at all that we don't do things that are good. Of course we do, but it's tainted, right? It's tainted. That same capacity we have to create cures for disease is that same intelligence that we have applied to creating nuclear weapons. or invented crucifixes. The point of the story is to highlight that there is just no way back for us. That's why we're sent out of the garden. There's no way back. There's no way for Adam to undo what he has done. We cannot pay a price high enough to atone for what we did to set it right. We cannot pay a ransom price high enough to get us out of this predicament to slavery. Now, let's just think about this from, from the point of view of racism for a minute. The African-American civil rights campaigner Malcolm X wrote this in his autobiography in the 1960s. I believe that God is now giving the world's so-called Christian white society its last opportunity to repent and atone for the crimes of exploiting and enslaving black people. Does white America have the capacity to repent and to atone for what it has done? Many black men, the victims, in fact, most black men would like to be able to forgive, to forget the crimes, but most American white people seem not to have it in them to make, and, sorry, to make a serious atonement. Indeed, how can white society atone for enslaving, for raping, for unmanning, for otherwise brutalizing millions of human beings for centuries? And this is the most insightful point, I think, that's on the slide. What atonement, he asks, would the God of justice demand for the robbery of the black people's labor, their lives, their true identities, their culture, their history, and even their human dignity. A desegregated cup of coffee, a theater, public toilets, the whole range of hypocritical integration policies, these are not atonement. And he is absolutely right. There is nothing anyone could do to atone for those crimes or to atone for the centuries and centuries and centuries of human violence, injustice, and suffering that we have committed that stretch all the way back to Adam. We can't fix this. Only God can fix this. And we must not close our eyes to the reality of the situation we're in. It's my job this morning to tell the bad news. We'll get to the good news. But in order to set up the series, we need to deal realistically, with the reality that we're in, the sin that we need to be saved from. And this is where I get this very large book. I want to read a section to you. This is what Fleming Rutledge, it's a fantastic book on the crucifixion, she writes this. I don't have this on screen, sorry. Sin is a power holding our lives in a thrall. Sin is not just something we commit, it is something we are in. Sin, theologically understood, is analogous to the unconscious impulses and drives that shape our personalities in harmful ways, making us perfectionists, procrastinators, deceivers, abusers, addicts, schemers, bullies, fanatics, adulterers, and all the other manifestations that afflict the human species from sources beyond our control. We do not understand sin in terms of specific, discrete, actions willfully committed, but as compulsions over which we have very little or no control. This is not at all the same thing as excusing sin by calling it neurosis. It should be apparent 
that the last thing we are recommending is any euphemistic downgrade in the status of sin. We want, what we want is to emphasize that sin is a power that has enslaved us. Sin is like the colossal X factor in human life. It's not something we do as much as it is something done to us by our mortal foe, the alien power that has lured us into becoming its agents. There is no room for sentiment here. The stakes are way too high. The cross rears up over all human life because it is the scene of God's climactic battle against the power of a malignant and implacable enemy. Just take a deep breath and let that sink in for a moment. The cross is where Jesus went to war, where he came to deal with that which had taken us captive since the beginning. And we're going to talk about that a bit more in following weeks, but as Paul says in Romans 5, and I have this on the slide, therefore just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned by the trespass of one man, death reigned. We became enslaved to it. In other words, however, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so also through the, the obedience of one man, one perfect man, the many will be made righteous. Amen to that. And that is why, friends, there is in the biblical narrative, why we started in the Garden of Eden, a straight line between the knowledge of the tree of good and evil and the cross of Calvary. There is a straight line between the tree that brought a curse and the cursed tree. A straight line between the tree whose fruit was beautiful but forbidden and the tree whose fruit is grotesque and blasphemous. And that means that when Jesus Christ chose to go to the cross, that was God as a human being, as the second Adam, willfully taking on, willingly taking on our sinful condition, your sinful condition. Now, God doesn't just punish Adam and Eve in the beginning. He puts in motion a plan to save them. Like he sends them out of the garden, but in the cross, God follows Adam and Eve. The cross was God willingly entering the unmitigated catastrophe of what we had done, the pain and suffering of human history, and suffering it with us and for us, with us and for us. And in this moment, as Jesus exchanges his life for ours, he takes up our sin to free us from it. He willingly submits to death in order that the ransom price can be paid and we can be set free. You are free because you have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. We just close our eyes for a moment and give thanks to God for that. Let that sink in for a moment. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the immensity of this gift that you have given us, which goes beyond anything we could ever have done for ourselves. But how does it work? How does all this work? To whom is Jesus paying the ransom price? Now, 
This is a really thorny question, which has bugged theologians for the last 2,000 years. If Jesus is paying a ransom price, who is he paying the price to? Because there's an exchange of value here, right? So who's part of this deal? Is it being paid to God? Well, that would be really strange since we're not being held in slavery by God, but by sin and death, right? So there is a sense in which when we look at penal substitution, at justice, that where Jesus is paying a price to the Father to satisfy the wrath of God against our sin. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about Jesus making an exchange in order for us to be set free from the prison that we're in. So it's not necessarily being paid to God, so therefore is it being paid to the devil? Well, Hebrews 2 seems to suggest that. It's that the, the ransom was given to free us from him who held the power of death, that is the devil, that's what Hebrews 2 says. But isn't that giving the devil way too much credit, way too much power in this story? And besides, right, God does not owe the devil a thing. God does not owe the devil anything. Okay, but we do. We do. I mean, humanity does. Adam does. We are the ones, through our disobedience to God, who willingly sold ourselves into slavery to the devil, to sin, and to death. We owe something, and we can't pay the price. And Jesus doesn't dispute this because he calls the devil the God, small g, of this world. And when Jesus is tempted, the devil says, I have all the power and authority over all the kingdoms of the earth. And Jesus doesn't dispute that. The devil got it from somewhere. Where did he get it from? He got it from us, right? Um, so I want to be clear about this. God doesn't owe the devil a cent, not a darn thing, but we do. So God, in his mercy, takes up Adam's sin and pays Adam's price as a human being. That's the key thing here. And since Jesus' blood is worth more than anything in the world, it's worth more than every human being who's ever lived, it's worth more than the entire universe, then the blood of Christ is sufficient to pay the price to set us free. And so what happened at the moment of Jesus' death? One of the earliest Christian theologians, and I'm drawing this to a close now, and then we're going to come to the table, Gregory of Nyssa, tried to describe it this way that at the very moment Satan drew Jesus down into the grave, down into hell, that that very moment he realized he had made a terrible, terrible mistake. Now, this is speculative theology, okay? This is not from the Bible, but I think the imagery is really fantastic. He writes this, and he wrote this in about 300 AD. It was not in the nature of the opposing power, the devil, to come into contact with the undiluted presence of God and to undergo his unclouded manifestation. And because the deity of Christ was hidden under the veil of our nature, our humanity, that so as with a ravenous fish, the hook of the deity might be gulped down along with the bait of the flesh. And thus, life being introduced into the house of death and light shining in darkness, that which is diametrically opposed to light and life might vanish, for it is not in the nature of darkness to remain when light is present or, to, or of death to exist where life is active. In other words, the moment Jesus dies and he goes down into the grave, down into hell, the devil realizes he has made a terrible mistake. He has invited God into his kingdom. And the moment Jesus entered hell and his light and his glory and his deity and his beauty and his power was revealed, 
hell itself broke open. And that's why at the moment when Jesus rises from the grave, we're told 300 other graves popped open on that Easter Sunday morning. Death could not hold Jesus. Satan could not hold Jesus. And it's kind of an act of poetic justice when you think about it. Because by trying to consume Christ, as Adam and Eve consumed the fruit, the devil realized he had bit off way more than he could chew. So Jesus, it's almost humorous. Oh, you think you're the one who controls all things? That that moment, Jesus, who has not and has never been under the power of the devil, broke open the grave set the captives free, and we are no longer friends. If we are in Christ, we are no longer subject to the power and the fear of death. We say hallelujah to that. And that's why Jesus says in Revelation 1, do not be afraid. I now am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, but now look. I am alive forever and ever, and now I hold the keys of death and Hades. I've taken them back from the devil. I now have the keys to Hades and death. It is mine to control. I've taken back what the enemy stole from humanity from the beginning. And so, if you wouldn't mind standing with me, we're going to say these words from Revelation 5, which I think draw this so beautifully to a conclusion, and then we're going to come to the table. Can we just open up our hands and say these words together from Revelation 5? Worthy is the Lamb because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and we will reign on the earth. Notice what has happened there, friends, through the blood of Jesus God has given us back our original vocation as rulers, as image bearers, as his hands and feet to steward the world, to be a light and life, salt and light in the world. We will reign now on the earth. And just as we prepare our hearts for communion, I want to invite you, you can take a seat if you like, just to sit in silence for a moment. Spend some time before Jesus, and then we're going to pray a prayer of confession together. Take a moment to give thanks to God for what he has done for you, that he has ransomed your life, he has redeemed your life from the pit. He has redeemed your life from slavery to sin. He has redeemed your life from slavery to death. He has redeemed your life from slavery to the devil. You are a new creation. It is no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you.
you have been set free. So as we come to the communion table, let's, let's be real before God. Let's be honest. And so we are going to confess our sins together using a prayer that will be on the screen. We can read this uh, together out loud. Let's pray. Father eternal, giver of light and grace, we have sinned against you and against our neighbor in what we have thought, in what we have said and done, through ignorance, through weakness, through our own deliberate fault. We have offended your love and marred your image in us. We are sorry and ashamed and repent of all our sins. Because of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, forgive us all that is past and lead us out from darkness to walk as children of light. Amen. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, and he blessed it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, drink of this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins, which doesn't just mean forgiving us what we've done wrong, but setting us free for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, in remembrance of Jesus, in remembrance of the cross.